God to guide our time. Father God, as we spend time the next 10 or so days thinking about your son coming down to earth, taking on human flesh, the incarnation, may we really focus on how we ought to respond in act of incredible worship because of what you've done for us. Father, as we look at really rather familiar text this week and next and even on Christmas Eve. We pray that we would never cease to be amazed, to have wonderment that God would become man, that your son would take on human flesh while attaining full deity for us. What an act of love, what an act of grace. God, our time we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Dr. Thomas shares about an event that took place on Fifth Presbyterian Church in New York. It was a number of years ago when Jim came to a Christmas Eve service. Jim had just received his six-month blue sobriety chip. Well done, Jim. He had come to the Christmas Eve service. He had come for a word of hope. He had arrived early, gone through the parking lot, through the Norfolk, into the sanctuary. He sat about halfway down. He was there early to prepare his heart. And about two rows in front of him was a family of four. There was a father and a mother and two young children. And as he sat there, tears rolled down his cheeks. This would be his first Christmas without his family. After years of alcohol abuse, which slid into abuse of his family, his wife and children had left not to return. He had come that night for a word of hope, but instead he saw what he had lost. In fact, it was losing his family that caused him to look up. To look up and to discover a God who loved him, who sent his son Jesus Christ to die on behalf of his sin and to rise again, that through faith in Christ, one might receive eternal life and forgiveness. But it was too much for him. Looking at that family just crushed him. And he thought to himself, I need a stiff drink. And he got up and he walked out he was walking through the Norfolk, heading towards the parking lot when perceptive Pastor Thomas said, Hey, Jim, where are you going? Jim paused for a moment. He said, I'm going for a scotch, Pastor. The pastor knew his history and said, You can't do that. One drink will lead to two, which will lead to four. And you will fall from the wagon. You can't do that. Let's call your sponsor. Let's get you some help. Jim looked at him ludicrously. He thought, you got to be kidding me. He said, Pastor, it's Christmas Eve. My sponsor is in Minneapolis with his family. There's nobody I can turn to. I'm heading for a drink. 
And the pastor put his arm around him and prayed with him. And then he had to go back into the sanctuary. And he handed him off to another pastor. And he walked into the sanctuary. It was two minutes before the service. He walked up to the mic. He said, if anyone here is a friend of Bill Wilson, and if you are, you'll know it. There's someone in the Narfex who needs you. Bill Wilson, better known as Bill W., is one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all over the sanctuary, women and men got up, and they headed out to the Norfolk to find this individual who needed help. And while Pastor Thomas spoke about the incarnation, the incarnation, God becoming man, taking on human flesh so that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He became one of us. A lot of miniature incarnations were taking place out in the Narfex where people took on with empathy the situation of this man. And at least that night, they kept him from a drink. And make no mistake, if you have challenges with alcohol, you can never drink again. One drink can destroy the rest of your life. Don't go back. Well, today you and I are going to talk about the incarnation. God who sees us in the midst of our need, who comes down in the form of humanity, born a babe, fully God, fully man, the second person of the Trinity, and he lives a perfect life because he sees you, he sees you, he sees you, he sees me in the midst of our sin, and we have a high priest who knows what it's like to live in human flesh, the incarnation. Today we're going to look at it through the eyes of the angel Gabriel, an archangel who speaks to Mary. I want to pick up in our text, I want to read verses 26 all the way to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee, so we're up north in Israel, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, the one who is called barren. 
for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's likely that this day started like any day. All the days that preceded it. Mary is a young gal. She's 12. She's just celebrated her bat mitzvah. It'll be a normal day except for the intersection of God in her life. She lives in Nazareth. Nazareth was a sleepy little village in her day. If you visited Nazareth today, it's nothing like what she experienced. Today, there is between 80 and 90,000 Arabs living in Nazareth. 69% of them are Muslim. 31% are God-fearing, Christ-honoring Christians. There are more Arab Christians in Nazareth than Jewish Christians in all of Israel. But that was not the way it was in Mary's day. In fact, if we're really honest, until 1962, liberal scholars doubted the truthfulness of today's text. We knew nothing of ancient Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. The first century historian Josephus, he never mentions it. So liberal scholars argued that ancient Nazareth in the first part of the first century, did not exist. It's a fabrication of a later redactor, a later editor. But it's not. In 1962, archaeological evidence uncovered the reality that there was a first century Nazareth. A sleepy little town, 12 extended families, between 300 and 400 people lived in Nazareth. In fact, in the last decade, for the very first time, we have unearthed some of the houses that existed in Nazareth during the time of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And the question I would ask at this moment is this, how did Luke know of ancient Nazareth when we didn't know about it until 1962, unless Scripture is accurate even beyond what we would ever imagine. 1962. Some of you, not me, were alive in 1962. Okay. I almost was alive, but not quite. And today, if you would go to the Nazareth Village Church, I take groups there all the time. It's a crusader church. It's 12th century. Understand that we now know that the foundation in the floor is the foundation in the floor that Jesus stood upon. The walls and the roof, the crusader. But the kids just sang to us from Isaiah 61. They sang these words which Jesus proclaimed from this very pulpit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, that's us. He has sent me to build up the brokenhearted, that's you, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives, that's me. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound, that's all of us. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And whenever I take a group there, I read that text. As we stand on the very foundation, the very floor in which Jesus opened up that scroll in Isaiah and read those words. And then you remember he rolled the scroll back up. And he said, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm God. I'm the incarnation. I came for you to set the captives free. And you remember what the Nazarites did. They drove him to the precipice of a hill to throw him over. They understood his declaration which would be blasphemy if it were not true, but it was not yet his time, and he walked freely through them. This is where Mary lives, a spiritually sensitive young gal, almost certainly illiterate, almost every day going to the synagogue, memorizing large portions of the Old Testament each and every day. This is Mary. It's a time when she has celebrated her bat mitzvah. And she's now ready to marry a boy, no scratch that, a man, who has celebrated his bar mitzvah on his 13th birthday. And that man is Joseph. Now understand who Joseph is. Joseph is a member of the tribe of David. That's important because... The Old Testament proclaims that Messiah must come from the tribe of Judah, must come from the lineage of David. And when Joseph adopts Jesus by legal law, Jesus is then from the tribe of Judah fulfilling the prophecies. And although Jude, or Joseph is of royal blood, he has blue blood coursing through his veins. <laughs> He has a respectable job, not a royal one. He's far enough away from the throne that he doesn't get the financial benefits. So Joseph is a tecton. He's a carpenter. We get this wrong in our society because a carpenter means one thing to us, something different for them. I think of a carpenter as someone who saws wood, hammers, nails, creates foundation pieces that come up where you put the walls, and, and that's what a carpenter does. But in first century Israel, carpenters didn't have much wood. In fact, because of something that had happened years earlier, when the uh, various empires had ruled Israel and taxed you based on trees, there was a widespread cutting down of almost all trees. Tectons didn't have trees. They had stone. That's what he used. He built foundations with stone. He built walls with stone. He would find stone and, and he would chisel out the middles of a stone and that would be used as a manger to put the water for the animals and the hay for the animals. And I don't think he makes the manger that will be used for his son a hundred miles south in Bethlehem, but he's made mangers before. That's what he is. He's a tecton. But Matthew tells us something more about him. It says that he is a sadiq. 
It's a Hebrew word. It's a rare word. There's, there's no real translation in English. It means a holy one, a, a godly one. You might use it of an octogenarian who has walked her or his entire life pursuing God, learning Scripture, living out Scripture, has proven herself or his self for all of a life, you might rarely call such a person a sadiq. It's unheard of to call a 13-year-old boy a sadiq. This Joseph must have been a remarkable young man. And it reminds us, teens, that God can expect the greatness of, of maturity in Christ regardless of age, regardless of your age. But all of us ought to pursue being a sadiq. This isn't someone who may know more scripture than another, or may stand on a platform, or may have a microphone. It's not that. It's not a person who has a title or recognition. It's not that. It's all about character. It's living out the fruit of the Spirit. To be a sadiq is to put on love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's to live out that like Joseph did. He was called a sadiq. We are called to be sadiqs. But before Mary and Joseph had gotten to the point where they were to live together, an angel, an angel comes to Mary. I don't know about you, but I want more details. I, I kind of would like to know what's happened. Is Mary inside the house? Is she sweeping? And, and suddenly it's like a, a Star Trek, beam me down, Scotty. And suddenly the angel materializes. Is it like that? Or does the angel knock on the door and she opens it? We get this angel thing all wrong. We think of Tinkerbell, all cute and sassy and smart. No, no, no. An angel is like SEAL Team 6, locked and loaded on steroids. They're warriors. This particular angel is Gabriel. He's an archangel. Think of when Gabriel came to talk to Daniel. There's only two people in the Old Testament where we have a lot of narrative and we have no evidence of their personal sin. Of course they sinned. And that would be Joseph of Genesis and Daniel. He's a man of God. He is a Sadiq. And yet when Gabriel comes before Daniel, he falls down as though dead. We can only imagine the dread and the horror. This young 12-year-old girl is an angel an archangel, as Gabriel stands before her. I think my text underestimates when he says, fear not. When he finally stabilizes Mary, he says, you have found favor with God. And she wonders, what kind of greeting is this? You have found favor with God? What does that mean? It means that there is spiritual greatness in you. And 
And because of that spiritual greatness, that spiritual maturity, God's favor rests on you. And it's not about pedigree. She doesn't have one. It's not about literacy. She's illiterate. If she isn't, that would be rather unique. It's not about being known. She's unknown except known by God. It's not about societal standing or wealth or titles. She has none of that. It's about a gal who learns God's word and lives it out. Spiritual maturity is not what we think. It's what God thinks. You remember what the Lord says. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. If we want spiritual maturity, if we want to be a sadiq, if we want to be a favored one, it's about integrity. It's about godliness. It's about the fruit of the Spirit living through us as God's Spirit controls us. These are the reasons, besides grace, that God chose Mary to birth the son of the Messiah. And so Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And I kind of think, what happens 32 years later? I wonder if she says, you know what, if that's favor from God, I I don't really know I want it. I mean, think what's going to happen to this young girl. She is going to face angry parents. She's going to face an angry, betrothed husband. She's going to face society and be ostracized probably for the rest of her life. And she's going to raise a son that's going to go to the cross because of her sin. She's going to raise a son that's going to go to the cross Because of your sin. She's going to go and raise this son who's who's on the cross because of my sin. And he made him who knew no sin, who never sinned, to be sin, to be covered with the sin of seven billion people today. Those who are still coming and those who are behind us. All of our sin was thrust on Christ. You who are favored, God's ways are not our ways. And yet she walked in obedience because that's what God put in her path. Gabriel continued, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of the increase of his government there will be no end. Since reaching the age of understanding, Mary, like all Orthodox Jewish girls and guys, have longed for the coming of the Messiah, the one who would take our sin. Because we are sinners in need of a Savior, they knew it, they longed for the Messiah. But I don't think in her wildest imagination she thought about a virgin birth. Oh, I know Isaiah says it. In chapter 7, 14, I don't think she thought about that. Or if she did, she never considered herself to be the virgin who would bring forth the Messiah. She's unlettered, unpedigreed, illiterate, from a nowhereville. She's from a city we couldn't even find until 1962 in its first century form. 
And yet God chose her. So Gabriel informs her that she will bring forth the Messiah. And then, I mean, think about this. I, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but think about this. She has to have a birds and the bees talk with an angel. How will this be since I am a virgin? What a nightmare for a 12-year-old girl. And, and she is a virgin. You see, understand what's going on in the text. She has reached her bar mitzvah. He has reached his bat mitzvah. Or, or bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. She and he. Sorry, got it backwards. They're now at the age of betrothal. Their parents have gotten together. He's paid the mohar, the bride price. They're in the first stage. It's the Kedushian stage. It means in the eyes of the law, their husband and wife. But in the eyes of the law, she must live with her parents for one more year. In her parents' house, under their watchful eye, they will remain chaste. If he dies during this one year, she will have an official title. It will be a widow who is a virgin. That's what's required in her society. They haven't reached the second stage in the second stage, they have a second celebration. And through a parade, he takes her home to be his wife. They haven't reached that yet. And the angel comes to her and says that you will be with child. The angel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation. That word overshadowed is actually the same word used in Scripture. When God's Spirit shows up in the temple, when God's Spirit shows up where two or three are gathered in my name, it is not a sexual term. It is a mysterious term about the presence of God's Spirit in a powerful and overwhelming way. That has happened. And she responds and says, may it be to me as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. Think about this for a moment. What will Mary's parents say? Will they be shocked, angry, fearful, sad? Probably. She lived in a day and age where a child prior to the second stage was unthinkable. In fact, it was illegal. What would they say? She would face the wrath of those parents. Yet she said, may it be to me, as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. She walks by faith, not by sight. She takes the difficult command of God and she says, I'll do it. And I wonder today what difficult command of God is the Lord laying on your heart or mine? It's not this one, but it might be another. And we might say, whoa, whoa, that's too hard. That's too difficult. That's too much. I'm too busy. Forget it, Lord. But remember a Sadiq, a holy one. Remember a servant of the Lord says, I walk by faith, not by sight. And Mary says, may it be to me as you have said. I don't only wonder what her parents think. I, I wonder what society thinks. They'll put up a passage in Deuteronomy 21. It's, excuse me, Deuteronomy 22. 
It's one of a lot of these passages. You see, in the Old Testament dispensation, which we're no longer under, Jesus fulfilled it for us, Matthew 5, 17. It was possible, rarely done. History tells us that Israel did not do this often. But it was possible that she could be stoned to death. It was possible that he could be stoned to death. This was a hard command. Do this. Obey this. And you can die. Do this. Obey this. And your joy could be over. Do this. Obey this. And your freedom can be taken from you. And what does a Sadiq do? What does a favored one do? They walk by faith, not by sight. May it be to me as you have said. And again, I wonder. I wonder if there's something that the Lord has laid on your heart, on my heart, to do, to not do. To change, to be transformed. And we say, too hard, too difficult, too busy. Or, we say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And I'll walk by faith, not by sight. And we follow the Lord in obedience. Obedience. Even when it's hard. It's not just Mary, it's Joseph. Joseph, when he doesn't yet understand what's going on, he is going to divorce her quietly. He will never be called a Sadiq again. Never. If he does not divorce her publicly, everyone will assume the child is his. And though he ends the marriage, he's ending his life as a holy man. A godly man, a man with reputation that's positive. It's gone forever. But you remember in Matthew 1, 21, the angel comes to him and says that, you will, that Mary will bear a son that's of the Holy Spirit and you shall name him Jesus because he will save my people from their sin. And he too walks in obedience. He too acts as though the Lord is the Lord, and he is the servant. And he walks by faith, not by sight. I'm so impressed with Mary. I'm so impressed with Joseph. They don't do the easy thing. They don't do the convenient thing. They do the God thing. And I wonder what the God thing is today in your life, in my life. Our will says this, God says this, and we do what God says. Mary took everything God gave her and she served the Lord. Do you know at the moment in which you and I prayed to receive Christ, the Lord gave us something? He gave us a supernatural gifting, a spiritual gift, to be developed because it doesn't come all put together. It could be wisdom, it could be knowledge, it could be teaching, it could be leadership, it could be administration or discernment, it could be service, it could be helps, it could be evangelistic, it could be giving. He gives us one or more of these gifts, and he only gives us two reasons in all of Scripture. To build up the body of Christ, the local church, and to bring glory to God. And you and I have a choice. Will we be a Sadiq? Will we be a favored one? Will we take what God has given us and stop doing what we shouldn't do 
because we pursue Christ or start doing what we should do because we pursue Christ and we utilize the giftedness entrusted to us. And like Mary, we say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Joseph, who takes Mary home to be with him, to be his wife and remains chaste until the child is born and forever destroys his earthly reputation among his own people. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't safe. It wasn't fun. But it was obedient. And he walked by faith, not by sight. May we do as well. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for the Christmas narratives. We love that as time goes on, archaeology proves over and over and over again the veracity, the truthfulness of your word. We love that your word challenges us to imitate those like Mary and Joseph. And not to go forth with just convenience, but to go forth with obedience and service. And Father, may we be Sadiq, righteous ones. May we be favored ones because of the spiritual graces that you have developed in and through us. And that we exhibit in life. And may we put off the sin that so easily entangles and run the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we run with perseverance. May we pursue you as you have pursued us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.